0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast to learn more visit osefc.org Good let's go to the preaching of God's word if you have your Bibles John 19 John 19 is where we will be this week is special for us brothers and sisters in Christ and here is my That I'm going to make Here's my sense of where we're at culturally I think Even in wider culture Easter is still A distinctively Christian holiday It may be the very last one So I'm a big Christmas guy Love getting the tree up The day after Thanksgiving The tree goes up the day after Thanksgiving That's law I love the music, I love the lights and the decorations, I love the parties, Uh, but if we're honest, even among Christians who want those things to point to Christ in Christmas, most of them just don't at this point. It's just things we're doing. Traditions are good, family's good, celebrations are good, but a lot of it doesn't point to Jesus. And so I, I get it with Easter. There's other things that don't point to Jesus. There's a bunny, and we do eggs. And jelly beans are a thing. And can we just stop and ask how all of that came together? Bunnies don't lay eggs. Where did the beans come from? That's a weird, it's kind of a weird amalgamation of things happening at Easter. But even in in the midst of that, a few other outside things, my sense is that Easter is still very much distinctly Christian in the way we celebrate. And I think our wider culture still knows that. And so let's lean into that this week. Over the course of the next week, let's lean into it. Let's lean into that in our own lives and let's lean into it in preparing to share the hope of Easter with people who aren't following Jesus. And so here's what I think that looks like. Uh, First, for you, concentrate in a special way on worship each day this holy week. Do something special. Uh, I mentioned the guides that we have for you and for your family. Here's maybe something you do. Read the book of Romans out loud. If you're married, read it with your spouse. If you have kids, read it with your family. If you have a friend, get on FaceTime and read it together. But if you do two or three chapters of Romans every day this week out loud, you'll make it through the whole book this week. And then another thing, let's lean into the opportunity that we have this week by asking somebody, who we've been hoping that we could have a spiritually significant conversation with. Folks, this is the week. We've been hoping that we can talk about spiritual things with. Let's just ask them if they're planning to celebrate Easter. That's all, that's all we have to do. That's, that's going to launch you into great conversation. Are you planning to celebrate Easter? If they say yes, ask them why is that important to them? If they say no, ask them if they want to come and celebrate it with you. Church, at your home, both. But we would invite anybody to be a part of what we're doing here. So let's lean into that this week. And then to move us into this holy week as a church community, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, and we're going to study and look at the death of Jesus from the Gospel of John this week. And then we're going to read about the resurrection from the Gospel of John next week. So what we're going to do is we will finish with Jesus today. We'll finish with Jesus dead and buried, and then we'll pick it up next Sunday right where we leave off this one with the resurrection. And I'm excited about that because of the simplicity of it. Uh, after the last, as I, was, as I was planning this, as we were thinking about this, after the last couple of years that we've had, I mean, just remember, two years ago, we didn't gather on Easter. Easter. Uh, even last year, as we were gathered, many of us were still unsure if we were going to be a part of that or, or even what it should look like. And so this year, we really wanted to keep it focused, and simplicity helps us to do that. And so we kept things, we're keeping things simple. There's a beauty in this simplicity, especially when it, when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is sufficient on its own. It doesn't need us to dress it up. And so when we get out of the way and let the story of the cross And the story of the empty tomb be light and be heat. We believe that God is going to work in the lives of people through that. And so this week is is Jesus, the perfect, sinless, God in the flesh, dead as a substitute for sinners. And next week it's Jesus resurrected, giving life and hope to anyone who would come to him. So if you've got your Bibles open, John 19, I'm going to start reading at verse 28. I'm going to go all the way through verse 42, and I'm just going to read it all the way through now, and then we're going to study together. John 19, starting at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst." and a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these two things took place to fulfill, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, And the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the day, the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. There is more here Than you could cover in a lifetime. Truly, this is one of these weeks where so much more of what I read and studied ended up on the cutting room floor than even made it into this. I mean, it's absolute agony this week preparing this, not just because I'm just feeling the weight of preaching the cross in preparation for the resurrection. But it just felt like I mean just cutting out parts that I just thought this is so good and we have to hear this, but there's just not room there's just not time, just agony this week so here's what I want to do there's three truths that, that sort of in particular rose to the top and if I said, if I only have time for three things, I believe it should be this this week as they they stood out to me so these three things from these passages you could spe- this passage you could spend the rest of your life reading daily and not find everything in it. First, the death of Jesus fulfilled Scripture. Second, the death of Jesus really happened. And third, the death of Jesus changed people. Each of these these hit a little bit differently. Uh, the, The death of Jesus fulfilling Scripture, that's a theological truth. The death of Jesus really happening is an apologetic truth. And the death of Jesus changing people is an applied truth. A theological truth, an apologetic truth, and an applied truth. It fulfilled the scriptures. It really happened. And it changed people. So let's start with the death of Jesus fulfilling scripture. Three times John explicitly says this was done to fulfill what was written in the Jewish scriptures which we now call the Old Testament, and there are at least another couple of places, if not more, where he seems to be very clearly alluding to more fulfillment. So look first at verse 28 where we began reading. Jesus thirsts, and he's offered a sour wine, like a vinegar. Since John doesn't say which Old Testament passage he has in mind, We'd have to do a little digging, and and, and scholars suggest two that he might be thinking of. Uh, One of them we know for sure was on Jesus' mind because he called out the first line while he was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22. That's Psalm 22, 1. Later in verse 15 of that psalm, the writer says, my strength is dried up. Like a potsherd, And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. If you read Psalm 22 and you read about the, the context that it was written in, it's written from the perspective of one who is an innocent, righteous man being made to suffer. So there's Psalm 22. But then there's an interesting juxtaposition of what comes next. So Jesus isn't offered something that's going to help his thirst. Vinegar is not good to drink. Psalm 69, 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Psalm 69 is another psalm about a man suffering, but this time he's grieving that he has done wrong and he deserves at least some of what has come upon him. And this is where a a juxtaposition, a, a theological truth is beginning to converge on the cross. Jesus went to the cross as an innocent man made to suffer unjustly, but by his own choice and in obedience to the will of his father, he takes the place on the cross of sinful men and women. So he never committed sin himself, but he has now become counted among sinners. And so when Christ is on the cross, the punishment that he endures not from his executioners is just, but from God the Father is a just punishment for sin. And Jesus Christ is now punished for sin in the place of sinners. And that's why it makes sense for Jesus to actually point to both of these psalms while he's on the cross. One points to him suffering even though innocent, The other points to him suffering because he now deserves to suffer because he's become a substitute for sinners. It's true when we say that Jesus died on the cross, that he did that to forgive us for our sins. But doesn't it feel like worship is is drawn out of your mouth, that it sort of beats out of our chests when we look at exactly how that was possible. I mean, I mean, it, it does for me. If we want people to accept the death of Christ as their death and, and tell them that they can have the life of Jesus as their life, then we need to be able to tell them how that's even possible. And the first thing that many skeptics are going to wonder is why this one death a couple thousand years ago could have anything to do with them and much more than that, how can that death somehow give them life? And the answer to that, seen here, as Jesus references these two psalms. It's seen in what Paul wrote really specifically in Second Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus becomes sin even though he knew no sin so that in him we might become righteous before God. Righteous in the sight of God. And so an exchange takes place on the cross. It's an exchange that you receive by faith. An innocent man suffers for you, a sinful person. And in that exchange, he became the sinful one and you receive his innocence. That's how that works. When your friend who is a skeptic wants to know You say, by faith, a change, an exchange is made. The righteous for the unrighteous, taking away our unrighteousness and returning to us his innocence. All done to fulfill the scripture. And after he drinks, thirsts, and is given something to drink, he declares that his mission is finished. And then he dies. Uh, John has at least two things in mind when he tells us what happens next. Uh, the, scene, the scene set where Jewish leaders complain uh, that, that, that the crucifixions are possibly going to take too long. And so they, they want them sped up. They're, they're going to violate some ritual laws. And so they ask that these executions can be expedited. So the way crucifixion works is it's, it actually suffocates a person. When a man is hung there, his body slouches to the point of of restricting air flowing into and out of his lungs. And so he has to push himself up by his feet or his ankles and he has to pull himself up by his arms or his hands to expand the lungs so that he can get a breath. Breathing is absolutely excruciating while being crucified And you don't die, really, of other things. You die by suffocating. And so what you do is you engage the legs, you engage the arms, and so you can breathe until you struggle to breathe and can't breathe any longer. But that's really impossible to do without your legs. And so to get the process moving, they could break them. If you can't push yourself up by your legs, you can't breathe when you're nailed to a cross. So they say, let's get this over with. Let's break their legs. But when they come to Jesus, they don't have to because he's already dead. It's incredible for two reasons. First, if he was even alive for a few more minutes, they would have broken his legs. But there's another section of the Old Testament. We're gonna see more prophecy fulfilled here. Another Old Testament law says that when the priests and others, who were preparing sacrifices for the sins of the people, the primary one, one that was celebrated in in the history of the people of God, the Passover lamb, part of their most sacred celebration, their most sacred tradition, would be killed, and the blood was to be shed for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. But very specifically, even though death was to come to that animal, it was forbidden from breaking its bones it's exodus 12:46 it's repeated in numbers 9:12 but then in psalm 34 a psalm another one that's written about a righteous person being protected it says that that promise that his bones shall not be broken are applied to a man no longer a lamb but a man and this is especially poignant because the first introduction we have to Jesus, the man, the person in John's Gospel is in chapter one, where he's seen coming. And somebody calls out, Look, the Lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. So you might be familiar with Jesus, or sorry, with Jewish people still celebrating Passover to this day. And and part of that remembrance, that that celebration is is a Seder meal. It's a ritual that that follows an ancient pattern and is what Jesus and his disciples were doing less than 24 hours before what we're reading. Now, John devotes more of his gospel to that meal than than any other other gospel writer. Something like 25% of the gospel of John thinking, what is the most important things that people need to know about Jesus? And he uses a quarter of that space to talk about just that meal. And so you would assume that with the amount of attention that's given there is you would get a good description of the food that was a part of the meal. The lamb was the centerpiece of the meal. And so you, you certainly get a good description of the lamb. But there's no mention of it. 25% of the gospel and there's no mention of it. There's bread. There's wine, but no lamb. And the reason is because Jesus has become the Passover lamb. He wasn't on the table. He was sitting at the table. And now he takes away the sins of the world. And just like the lamb before, who done nothing wrong as an animal, but he's made to suffer so that people could have their sins atoned for, now it says that none of Jesus' bones will be broken. He is the new Passover lamb. What does happen, though, to Jesus on the cross is, is something that would probably have been even much more brutal to witness. To ensure that he was dead, a Roman soldier takes a spear on a long handle and shoves it into his side, and from his body come flowing blood and water. This was another common way for Romans to make sure those that they crucified were really dead. You pierce their pericardial sac. And this tells us something about. Not only Jesus being dead, but who he is. John loves symbolism. It's all over. We already heard it. Uh, Nicodemus, we read it, came to Jesus by night. Happened at night also means spiritual darkness. John loves symbolism, and he loves referring not only to the Old Testament, but things that have already happened. And so it's not just extra words that describe what came out of Jesus, blood and water. The blood is what, blood is what flows out of men. When you pierce their skin. And John wants us to know that blood flowed out of Jesus. Twofold here. Number one, he's a man. He bleeds like men. People ever wondered, maybe he's just kind of a god in a shell. Maybe he doesn't, does he he have blood? No, he's got blood. Blood flows out of him because blood's what's in men. But the blood that flowed out of him, John clearly wants us to see that that's the, the lamb's blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And then the water that comes flowing out is what Jesus was thirsting for. But it's also what comes flowing from him to anybody who trusts in his name. Earlier in this gospel, (coughs) Jesus said that he was living water. And anyone who drinks from him will be satisfied and never spiritually thirst again. You need the blood that comes flowing from him to forgive your sins. You need the water that comes flowing from him to satisfy you, your spiritual thirst for the rest of your days. This is another pressing together, just like those two psalms of Jesus' divinity and his humanity. He bleeds because he's a man just don't have time, was on the cutting room floor, had a whole thing about Jesus being baptized in the water and the spirit descending on him and now the water comes flowing out of him, the symbolism that John loves there. But he can save, We'll we'll just say this, he can save because he's God. He can be the substitute because he's a man. And there's also an apologetic emphasis to what John is recording. The two earliest lies that tried to deny the death and resurrection of Jesus, were that his body was stolen, number one, and that's going to be refuted in a minute when his body is embalmed and placed in a guarded tomb. And second, the second line was that he was never really dead. Both of these are preposterous. Uh, but John is handling the easiest one right here. Uh, I, I don't know how much you know about, about anatomy and physiology, but Romans actually knew quite a bit And the executioners knew that Jesus was already dead. There was no doubt about that. You can't shove a spear into somebody's heart and expect that they might bounce back in a couple of days. Okay, you don't have to be a doctor to get that. So they shove a spear into his heart just to make sure he's really, really dead. And a lot of people watched it happen. So John wants us to be sure that Jesus died, which he did. Because when he tells us he rose again, you can see that that has to change everything about your life. So to refute the idea that he wasn't really dead, John's just really clear, they killed him. He was dead. So he died brutally, but three days later, he's back to life Powerfully, And our faith rests on that. It, we rest on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it's so important for us to know that he really, really died so that we can know that he really, really lived. So he dies. And then what happens, we read in this section, he is uh, prepared for burial. They bring 75 pounds of linens and spices to make sure the odor of the body... Does not bother people. Listen, you can't have, you can't be beaten and crucified and have a spear shoved into your side and then be weighted down with 75 pounds of burial materials and come back from that. The only explanation for people, lots of people, seeing Jesus alive 36 hours later is that God brought him back to life. The apologetic emphasis here is that Jesus was really, really dead. And our faith rests on that truth. And this brings us to the third outcome of the death of Jesus that John, John is emphasizing. The death of Jesus changes people. This one really kind of brings the other two together as well. So two men, both who would previously followed Jesus secretly, are no longer afraid And they're willing to bear the the, the social and the personal consequences of believing in him. So uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus both come and contribute to the testimony that Jesus is one who fulfilled the scripture. And he was meant to suffer and he was meant to die for the sins of the people. So Joseph's actions point to the suffering of the Messiah from Isaiah 53. The whole chapter is opened up by watching Jesus be tortured and killed. But even the, the aftermath of the cross is predicted there. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. Nicodemus reminds us of the birth of Jesus. Uh, sometime in, in, in what was likely his toddler years, travelers, who, who we call wise men, come and they they bring gifts to Jesus. One of the gifts is myrrh, uh, which had a few other uses, but a primary use was preparing people, uh, dead people for burial. In the imagery that's seen when those three gifts are uh, are presented to Jesus, uh, he's presented with gold, kind of points to his kingship. Frankincense points to God's coming near to us. And in the gift of myrrh, his death is foreshadowed and the significance of his death is predicted. And here we read that Nicodemus, it's not an accident, brings myrrh. Typically used for that, but also something given to Jesus as a very, very small child. And then both of these men are no longer afraid to be identified with Jesus after seeing him die. And they're not the only ones. So just the the night before, A group of people asks Jesus' disciple, Peter, if he was a companion of Jesus. And Peter is so ready to deny that claim that he swears an oath that he doesn't even know Jesus. But then just a few days later, Jesus is going to lead Peter to repentance from that sin. He's going to be forgiven and then he will embark on a life that will ultimately lead to his own death on a cross. According to historians, Peter was crucified in Rome as punishment for his refusal to worship the Roman emperor as God because he knew Jesus was the one true God, and he refused to stop preaching the resurrection of Jesus. So they killed him. And while Peter's death doesn't do anything to save us, it's a clear example of the effect that watching D- Jesus die had on him. In Mark's gospel, one of the Roman soldiers who was, dis- who was assigned to oversee the crucifixion watched him die, and something about, it says something about that action alone was enough to convince the soldier that Jesus really was the Son of God. And it it says it happened there in Mark just after Jesus breathed his last, which we know from what we just read in John, that that immediately followed Jesus saying, it is finished. And there there are a few things that that are fair to conclude about this soldier. Uh, First, the soldier had most likely seen quite a bit of death before this. Uh, Likely, he would have been a career soldier who had already served, this was probably a later in life, later in career assignment, he'd already probably been in a forward combat area, seeing lots of death. Rome was constantly at war, taking and occupying and defending land. Lots of death for the Roman army. And secondly, he'd probably seen, it's it's very likely that he'd seen lots of crucifixions before. Uh, even if this was the first one that he had been assigned to oversee, there are uh, accounts of Romans using crucifixion, sometimes by the hundreds, even the thousands at a time, to punish and display the consequences of defying the conquest of the Roman army. And so Roman soldiers would have been well acquainted with this particular method of execution. It's possible that he has seen hundreds If he was in certain areas, thousands of people die in this way before. But something about the way this one man died was different for him. He could have woken up that morning, known it was on his schedule to oversee a crucifixion, possibly done that, likely done that before, probably seen a lot of them, And so this day was going to be nothing out of the ordinary for him. But there's something about the way that this one particular man sees witnesses that doesn't lead him to believe he was just special, brave, a good leader. But he actually says, certainly this man was the son of God. What could it be about the way that Jesus died that leads them to say, this is God in the flesh. God just died and I just watched it. And here's the thing. The fact that Jesus' death profoundly changes people actually shouldn't shouldn't surprise us at all. Nobody's ever died like this. And nobody will ever need to die this way again. Whatever it was, that drew this man to this conclusion, we can be sure this was at least part of it because we know it to be true from the Bible. In his death, Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of the Father and he chose to joyfully endure this suffering. And the reason was because from eternity past, this is how the Father and the Son and the Spirit decided that it would go. This is the cost of your sin my sin. And this is the price of redemption from it. And folks, this death of Jesus can be your death so that you no longer have to die. Yes, some of our bodies are going to fail. They all will, in fact, if Jesus doesn't come first. But the true consequence, the former consequence of death under sin will never touch you if you believe that Jesus' death is now your death. Romans 6 says that if we trust that Jesus' death is our death, then we can also be sure that his life is our life. But for you to believe that... It can't just be something that you know other people believe. You have to believe it too. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they're no longer afraid to be known as followers of Jesus. I think it's probably likely that they joined the community of the first Christians Jesus followers together. I think the soldier may have too. Every day of Peter's life was different because of this. It changed the course of everything that Peter did. But that was them. What about you? It's not enough for your family to believe this. It's not enough for you to be raised in a house where this was talked about. You can come here and come on Good Friday and come on Easter. But do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Are you willing to believe that he bore the punishment for you? And now you want to be known as his disciple. If that's something you haven't previously believed, come to believe it. Make that death your death so that that life can become your life. If you believe it, never get tired of hearing it and never cease to be amazed that it's been given to you. This week, Christian, is for you to re-enter and to say the death he died, I now die, so that the life he lives, I now live with him. This is a week of worship for Christians. It's okay to be heavy this week. Easter's coming and praise be to God. Let's have a celebration, but enter into the death of Jesus this week. Contemplate that. Take extra care to confess your sin knowing it was given to Christ on the cross and he bore the punishment to the end for it. And feel extra light extra rest, extra peace, because it's been taken away from you. If your shoulders are drooping and heavy today, raise them up, because Christ has been raised for the forgiveness of your sins. You no longer bear them. They're paid for, done, and that happened a long, long time ago. For the ones that you will commit this week, know that Christ has already paid for them be grieved by them, confess them, but known that they have been thrown as far as the east is from the west. Known that the wrath of God, which was full against them, has been full on to Christ. So may this be a week for us as Christians to reflect and then to celebrate, and may it be one for us To invite people into life for any can have this life, any can see the death of Jesus for what it is a death unlike any other, and a death no longer necessary because for once and for all time it has been made. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for the plan of redemption. We pray that this would sit on us now, but that we would be lifted in spirit and mind as we contemplate your goodness. We are great sinners, but the cross is more than enough, and the tomb will be empty. Praise be to your name. May we sing of these things and celebrate these things and speak of these things together, for we are here to praise your name and to encourage one another. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.